Hey friends, we all take soil and dirt for granted here on Earth, but sand, soil, and dirt is all made by natural processes that are kind of unique to our home planet. We have rain, wind, and microorganisms that are constantly grinding rocks down into dust. Plants take root and accelerate this process. The lava fields around the Kilauea volcano on the island of Hawaii is an excellent place to see this process in action. Perhaps because it's so common for us to see, it probably surprised nobody that the moon would also have soil, moon dust, a place for those Apollo astronauts to leave footprints. But the moon has no weather. It has no running water or organisms to grind down the moon rocks into moon dust. So just what is all of that moon dust doing there? Where did it come from? Today, we are taking our humble field guide to the moon. We'll be discussing how those subatomic particles coming from our sun and cosmic rays blast the moon's surface. To share the story of how all these subatomic particles change the landscape of the moon, we've brought in an expert, Dr. Jean-Philippe Combe. Jean-Philippe is a planetary scientist who studies the surfaces of planets and other bodies in our solar system. After studying physics and geophysics at Grenoble and Toulouse, he got his doctorate at the University of Nantes in 2005 and has specialized in reflectance imaging spectroscopy of planetary surfaces. In short, he's a natural person to ask about how particle physics impacts the surface of the moon. From 2005, he was a full-time research scientist at Methow Valley's own planetary science center, the Bear Fight Institute, and as of March 2021, has been affiliated with the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, Arizona. In Jean-Philippe's own words, I was born in France about 10 kilometers from the impact location of a 92-kilogram meteorite that fell in the small town of Juvenas on June 15, 1821, at 3 p.m. No victims were reported, only a one-meter hole in a potato field. The Juvenas meteorite has been since classified as a eucrite, which likely originated from the asteroid Vesta. Amusingly, Vesta plays an important role in Jean-Philippe's current research. We'll link to Dr. Combe's professional website and research in the show notes. As any seasoned scientist, Jean-Philippe wrote, recorded, and shipped this essay to me before I could even set an interview date. So aside from a few pauses for commentary, I'll just let him take it from here. Oh, and if you'd like a version without all the commentary, please just drop me a note on the website, basatan.org. Welcome to the Field Guide to Particle Physics. This is your informal guide to the subatomic ecosystem that we're all immersed in. Today, Dr. Jean-Philippe Combe will tell us about the impact of the solar wind and cosmic rays on the surface of the moon and why, as we begin a new era in space travel, we need to worry about the lunar soil, or regolith. The coming narration comes largely from one scientific article entitled Sources and Physical Processes Responsible for OH-H2O in the Lunar Soil, as revealed by the Moon Mineralogy Mapper, M-cubed, by Thomas B. McCord, Lawrence A. Taylor, Jean-Philippe Combe, Georgiana Kramer, Carly M. Peters, Jessica M. Sunshine, and Roger N. Clark, published in 2011 in the Journal of Geophysical Research Planets, Volume 116. The solar wind was postulated in the mid-19th century as a flow of particles and energy, photons, traveling away from the sun into the solar system. 
the observations that led scientists to this theory were aurorae in the upper Earth's atmosphere, terrestrial magnetic storms, their correlations with solar flares, and comets' tails always pointing away from the Sun. The solar wind was first observed directly by the Soviet satellite Luna 1 in 1959 and verified by measurements from the Luna 2, Luna 3, and Venera 1, and then it was observed by a US spacecraft, Mariner 2, in 1962. The solar wind is composed mostly of protons and electrons, with about 4% helium and smaller amounts of heavier elements. The flux at the Earth is about 400,000 particles per square centimeter and per second, with average energy of around half of kilo electron volt per atomic mass unit, and the flux energy halfway between 300 and 1500 kilo electron volts, as measured in 2009 by the Indian lunar orbiter Chandrayaan 1. Hey, just a couple of notes to accompany Jean-Philippe's description of the solar wind. First, those electrically charged particles, or ions, are traveling at 300 to 1500 kilo electron volts. We've talked about electron volts before. It's a convenient choice of units to measure both a particle's energy and its mass. In this show, we usually talk about things in millions of electron volts, or MeV. Solar wind particles come flying in at 300 to 1500 keV, which you can relate to MeV by dividing by a thousand. In short, solar wind particles, like protons, have kinetic energies about a thousand times less than their mass energies. Compare this to cosmic rays, which have energies much, much, much larger than their mass. So, solar wind particles are relatively slow. That slow speed is why they get caught in the Earth's magnetic field. Second, atomic mass units, or AMUs, is chemistry speak for the approximate mass of a proton or neutron, about a thousand MeV. With that context in mind, Jean-Philippe will now tell us how those particles impact the Moon. For this energy range, protons, H+, have a penetration depth in the surface grains of 5 to 10 nanometers. The solar wind plasma is almost completely absorbed by the Moon's inuited surface. However, up to 20% of the impinging solar wind protons are reflected from the lunar surface back to space as neutral hydrogen atoms. Did you catch that? 20% of those solar protons slam into the surface of the Moon, steal an electron, and leave as hydrogen atoms. Raiders! The solar wind impacts the lunar surface, and the resulting interaction depends largely on the nature of the lunar soil exposed to space at the molecular level. The lunar surface has two major types of terrains that can be distinguished with the naked eye. The bright ones are called the highlands, and the dark ones are called by the Latin word mare, which means seas, although they are not made of water, but are instead made of volcanic rocks, with various types of minerals rich in iron oxides and magnesium oxides. Most known minerals of the solar system are made of molecules that contain large amounts of oxygen, mostly in oxides. The lunar soil surface consists in a layer of crushed rock, minerals, and glass called regolith. On the Moon, regolith formation results from combination of all the physical and chemical factors that occur on airless bodies, and that is called space weathering. This is unlike the processes that occur on Earth and that are largely driven by tectonic activity and erosion due to the water cycle and atmospheric circulation. On the Moon, the agents of space weathering include a wide range of types and size of impactors, such as meteorites, micrometeorites, solar wind particles, solar ultraviolet photons, and galactic cosmic rays.
SolarWind particles bombard the exposed surfaces of lunar soil grains, producing an amorphous layer and affecting atoms, ions or molecules to be ejected from a latest site in the target material. This process is called sputtering. Such ejected particles from the source material can be redeposited as a thin film on the surface. The sputtered particle can be charged, but it is almost often neutral. The sputtering energy is inherent to the solar wind velocity and particle mass. Heavier ions such as helium plus and other heavy species with greater incident energies also play a significant role in the sputtering process. Sputtering of cations with the lowest crystalline binding energy occur preferentially, such as for magnesium. Sputtering changes the surface of something that might otherwise be smooth, like metal. Atoms in a metal like iron are usually bound together in a regular pattern, a lattice. Particles from the sun slam into that nice smooth lattice of iron atoms or iron oxides, other kinds of minerals in that lattice structure, and kicks one atom out and it lands somewhere else. It's a bit like taking an egg out of its place in an egg container and stacking it awkwardly on top of the other eggs. Sputtering can roughen up or at least change the texture of a surface in this way. Interaction of the lunar surface with solar wind particles occurs in a context where micrometeorite impacts locally melt the soil to form layers of amorphous glass at the surface of mineral grains and agglutinates composed of smaller fragments of minerals in a matrix of glass. As a consequence, the solar wind is able to implant protons in a lunar soil that is rich in iron oxide, FeO, by reducing the FeO component in the soil melt to metallic iron. As a result, in agglutinitic glass of soil grains, nanophase metallic iron particles are ubiquitous. Micrometer-sized meteors, tiny little rocks or grains of sand almost, pelt the moon repeatedly, almost kind of like sandblasting. It helps create that glassy patina, where here glass is that amorphous structure which should be contrasted against the rigid order of a crystal lattice that metals or minerals typically find themselves in. A bit like a host of eggs piled up any which way rather than in nice, orderly egg cartons. The texture and major element compositions of these thin, amorphous rings on the surface of lunar soil grains is a testament to the process of vaporization and subsequent deposition of these silica-rich patinas with their myriads of nanophase iron particles. In summary, tiny little space rocks together with particles from the solar wind create a layer of lunar soil that's almost like a powder of glass with tiny nanometer-sized chunks of iron trapped inside. Very different from what we find here on Earth. But that's only the solar wind. There are more kinds of radiation bombarding the lunar surface. Now let's talk about photons, and specifically about solar ultraviolet photons. This is a radiation that triggers the emission of electrons from the lunar day side surface, which makes the surface charge several volts positive and leaves many dangling positive ions. The released photoelectrons move to the unlighted side of the moon and into the solar wind plasma wake formed by the moon absorbing most of the solar wind. So the moon's surface is electrically charged. It's positive. Isn't that crazy? The sun's ultraviolet photons, the same ones that break up organic molecules and cause sunburn on our skin, also kick electrons off the surface of the moon. Some of these effects were observed by the electron reflectometer on board the Lunar Prospector spacecraft, and they have stimulated the study of the electrical charging of objects on the moon, such as astronauts. 
The photo ejection of electrons is yet another effect that enhances the chemical activity of the lunar soils. So the moon's surface is a pretty reactive place, chemically speaking. To continue with flux of particles, we have to mention cosmic and galactic rays, which are high-energy particles on the order of, of 1 giga electron volt on the moon, and which can penetrate several meters into the regolith. As they fragment into less energetic products, such as neutrons, they can leave damaging tracks in crystalline grains of minerals. At a high density, these accumulated tracks can cause amorphization, which is the definition of removal of all crystals in a grain of mineral. In other words, cosmic rays damage the crystal structure of the rocks and soils deeper below the surface, creating a glass-like material down there as well. To summarize what we've learned so far, all that moon dust that we've been seeing in videos from astronauts walking on the moon was formed by impacting space rocks or meteorites with the help of particles from the solar wind and cosmic rays. But of course, there's still much to say. So, why is it important to study the interaction of solar wind particles with the lunar surface? One way of identifying the molecular composition by remote sensing is reflectance spectroscopy, which measures the proportion of sunlight reflected and scattered by the moon's surface, either by spacecraft in orbit or by telescope. The processes we just described have major consequences on studying the composition and brightness of the surface of the moon, which challenges atoms to understand its surface geology and thus its past activity and early evolution. In particular, first, glass deposits from space weathering add an opaque top layer to mineral grains, which masks the underlying composition and makes it difficult to identify remotely by spectroscopy. Two, glass deposits due to space weathering can be misinterpreted as glass deposits from pyroclastic activity. Only a geological analysis of the surface texture may distinguish between the two processes. In other words, all that glassy, amorphous junk with those nanoparticles of iron, that patina on the moon, makes it impossible to study what else is inside the moon, at least from a distance. It also interferes with our ability to study any possible history of volcanic activity on the moon. But, of course, there's more. More importantly, the process of proton implantation has opened two major areas of research about the moon. The first one is the formation of hydroxyl, the OH group, and subsequently of HOH, H2O, which is so important today to find viable resources for manned missions to the moon. Water on the moon! The second one is observation of regions of alternate bright and dark areas with wavy patterns on the mare, and that are called respectively lunar swells and dark lanes that seems to be associated with remnant crustal magnetic anomalies, which is further evidence of tectonic activity inside of the Moon in the past. As a hypothesis, the bright swirls may be protected from incoming charged particles by the local magnetic field, and they still have largely undamaged crystals and pristine grain surfaces. Simultaneously, the deviated charged particles are redirected into the dark lanes, which have most likely undergone enhanced glass deposition and crystal damaging over time. Both phenomena have led to fascinating studies in the past decade and are still relevant topics in current lunar science. Wow, wouldn't it be wild if the moon had a magnetic field in its past and we could see its swirling imprints literally on the moon itself thanks to the deflection of all those electrically charged particles from space? A huge thanks to Dr. Jean-Philippe Combe for sharing his work with us today. What a treat to be given an in-depth tour of how particle physics literally impacts the surface and soils of the moon. 
If you have any questions for Jean-Philippe, please do reach out. I'll be compiling a list of them and we'll post them in a future show. For more on Jean-Philippe's research, planetary science in general, and the moon, please check out the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an installment of the Field Guide to Particle Physics, a copyrighted production of the Poseidon Institute. For a full, free, online copy of the Field Guide, please visit our website at poseidon.org or follow us on Instagram. We've got a lot of other resources for you there. At the Poseidon Institute, we're on a mission to build and share physics knowledge without barriers. Come learn with us. 